You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 45 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Pushatz. This is the show for June 2017, and the topic is Thoughts on Software. And uh, it's just me chatting to you this month. Uh, I have an interview lined up for next month, but this month is just me. And it's um, partly a sort of an essay-style show, and partly actually a recommendation of another podcast. Go listen to when you're finished listening to this one. So I want to recommend to you a podcast run by internet friends of Antonio Rosario, Sid and Mac. It's called Shutter Time with Sid and Mac, and you'll find it at shuttertimewithsidandmac.com. It is... The language is not always entirely safe for work. Um, it's not obscene for the sake of being obscene. It's just honest language, as I would call it, which means that the odd you know, not acceptable word in certain prudish circumstances is most certainly present. And maybe it's my Irish upbringing, but I actually have absolutely no problem with that. I I, I don't hold with prudishness. Anyway, it's not vulgar. It is honest. And it's also very much in keeping with the ethos I have for this show. Now, they... So I like to say this is a show about the art and craft of photography. In other words, it's not about whether this Canon camera is better than this Nikon camera or this particular lens is better than that particular lens. It's about the art and craft of making great photographs. And yes, technology in a general sense is part of that, but it's not about which particular piece of kit is best. And Sid and Mac have a very similar view of things, but they have actually a much more fun way of expressing that concept they don't call it the art and craft of photography they call it arting the art uh, or the art of arting in fact to be more specific and it's as i said their, their show is fun so it's over at shuttertimewithsidandmac.com and so i recommend you subscribe now the show before last as in their previous to the current show or rather episode 161 to give it its proper name inspired me actually to make this show as a sort of a response so the theme of the show was supposed to be a look at the many choices out there for people who feel they want to move away from Lightroom uh, or the Adobe suite in general because they don't feel that it's the right fit for them for all sorts of reasons. And one of the reasons, in fairness, that tends to get very highly cited is the move to subscription-based pricing, software-as-a-service, cloud, basically. And the theory was that it was supposed to be a short discussion of why Sid didn't feel the cloud was a good fit for her, followed by a description of all the many choices that are out there. And there are indeed many choices, and the show did eventually get there. But you know something? The show was mostly dominated by a genuine outpouring of deep-felt, strong emotion. And that's not a criticism um, that is just an observation. That is, that is what happened on the show, and I think there's a really good reason for that. reason for that is that software gets under our skin. We, we interact with it so much and so closely, and in some cases for so long, that we develop a bond with it. And moving away, being effectively we feel forced to move away, is painful. 
I mean, I actually think in hindsight that I grieved for the loss of Aperture when Apple pulled the plug on it. I like it affected my photography. It triggered a year and a half long dry spell because I felt when I was using other apps, like I had one hand tied behind my back. I felt abandoned by Apple. I felt after all these years being a loyal Apple user, how dare they abandon this product? Now, that's not logical. In fact, it's absolutely daft. It's ridiculous. But it's how I genuinely felt. And I am absolutely, positively not alone in that. And I think people get invested in all software that's good. But I think we get doubly, triply, quadruply invested in software we use for creative expression. Because this is the tool that allows us to express ourselves, to get out of ourselves that which we feel we need to share with the world. And for photographers, that means that our photo apps are extremely dear to us. They, you know, so the emotions that were so obvious in episode 161 of Showtime with Sid and Mac are real. And they're no bad thing. In fact, it's a tribute to Adobe that their software was good enough to elicit such a strong response. However, emotional responses need to be followed with logic. So I want to talk today not about the emotion. I want to try look at it logically in the hope of sort of coming to helping people think about what they want from their software and what software best meets their needs. Now, I think the single most important point I want to hammer home, well, there's a couple of important points I want to hammer home, but one of the key points is that there is no such thing as universally best software. There is not a best photo app. There is a best photo app for you and for me and for everyone. Each individual has a best fit it won't necessarily be perfect, but there will be an app that fits us better than the others. And exactly what we need is going to depend from person to person, from situation to situation. So what we actually need to do is not find the best app. We need to find the best app for us. And th- that takes some thinking and that takes some work, unfortunately. It would be much easier if you could just go online, type in, dear Google, what is the best app Google gives you a link, you click the link, you hands over your money and you're done. That, that would be much easier, but that is not realistic or in any way reasonable. So what do we actually need from our software? Well, actually, I think it comes down to two simple things. The obvious one is functionality. If the app doesn't do what you need the app to do, it can never be the best app for you. If you need a raw processor and the app doesn't support raw, well, then you can just chuck it away. It's not for you. If you want really good keyword management and the app doesn't do really strong keyword management, throw it away. It doesn't do it for you. The absolute easiest thing to do is to figure out whether or not it meets your functional requirements. Is Does this app provide me the functionality I need? That's easy. The hard part is figuring out whether an app is sustainable. Right? You are going to be investing in whatever software you choose. It is going to take you time to learn it. Now, I it, it has taken me over a year to get to the point where I am comfortable in Adobe Lightroom. Not, not just that I, I get by, I've actually arrived at the point I used to be in Aperture, 
where I forget that I'm using software and I'm just making the changes I want to my photographs, which is the whole point of creative software. It needs to, you need to be able to get to the point where it vanishes in the background. But that means I had to put a year and a half of effort into getting there. That effort involved some financial outlay. I signed up to lynda.com for the sole purpose of getting to grips with the Adobe suite. Uh, so that cost me 19 euros per month for a few months. I obviously had to put a lot of time into it uh, and frankly a lot of effort. So that was a real investment I made. So for me to do that, I need to be confident that this software has a future. If it's not sustainable, why would I ever put effort into learning to use it? I'm also creating files in a specific file format that is not an open source format. It almost never is with commercial apps, whether you're using the Affinity Suite, whether you're using Pixelmator, whether you're using Adobe stuff, whether you're using Apple stuff. You are creating files in a format that is dictated by the software you're creating. And yes, you probably have the option to export, but almost always you will lose the ability to go back and readjust. Yes, DNG gets you some portability, but no, it's not the it's not a panacea. You are investing in a format that is entirely at the mercy of the fate F A T E of the company who makes the software you've chosen to use. So every time you create a smart album, every bit of organization you do, every bit of keywording and tagging, every edit you make, every adjustment you make, that's an investment that the, the, the sustainability of that work depends on the software company continuing to exist and continuing to support that product. And realistically, that means you need to be confident in the economics of your software product. You should not invest time and energy learning a product whose economics are not sound. Now, there's lots of ways to end up with sound economics. There's not a single answer. A very obvious one is the open source community, right? If the open source community doesn't depend on economics in the traditional sense, what it depends on is a lively group of volunteers who are motivated and well-managed and basically a community that keeps itself going. And you actually, as a user of the software, have the ability to be a part of that community, to be a software tester, to write documentation, to help with bugs, to help debug bugs, maybe even to program if you're a programmer too. So there's a certain amount of control and ownership you actually get when you go, when you choose an open source solution. If you feel that the project is starting to, to, to fall behind, you can do something about it. Maybe it's donate money, maybe it's donate some of your time. But unfortunately, when it comes to a replacement for something like Apple's Aperture, there actually isn't an open source player in the market. It's just... Maybe it's too niche of a product for a large enough community to spring up to create a really good open source alternative. There, you know, there are lots of great open source projects in my life, lots of great open source software in my life, not in my photography life. It's a pity, but so be it. So then you're going left with a corporation. And a corporation needs income. It needs to be able to turn a profit. If a corporation starts making a loss, the software they make is doomed. So it is in my interest as a user to know that the company making the software I use is financially viable. So it's in my interest to pay them and to pay them regularly. Now, 
in the past, in the early days of computing, we could get away with treating software like a car. So someone would build it, you would buy it, and then it would be yours and you would just use it. And that actually worked reasonably well. So if you count in dog years, software would have a life of, you know, 10, 15 years sometimes. Like I, There were DOS-based apps, which I bought once and used for a decade, and it was not a problem. So why then are software companies really struggling to do the same today why why is there such pressure on software companies to move away from that model which is a model that consumers absolutely adore i buy this once it is now mine it, 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 so much in our real world is like that well the problem is the internet the internet ru- not ruined everything that's the wrong thing to say but the internet changed everything the the world post internet is not and can never be like the world pre-internet. Before the days of the internet, software could continue to be buggy and it wouldn't be the end of your digital life. Now, that's not possible anymore. So I need to back up and actually throw in another axiom here, another undeniable truth. All software is written by humans. All humans make mistakes. Therefore, it is an inevitability that all software has bugs. And those bugs will range from, oh, that's a dumb rendering problem, through to, oh, you can hack my computer that way. Now, before every single one of our devices was quasi-permanently glued to the internet, bugs were an annoyance. They were not an existential threat to our digital lives. Well, today, they are an existential threat to our digital lives. So the old model of write, sell, move on does not work. So any software that opens files which people send to each other through the internet is vulnerable to the new realities of our internet world. It is possible to send someone a JPEG, To have that JPEG trigger a bug in Photoshop and have that bug take over your computer. In other words, someone can email you a JPEG and hack you if you have an out-of-date image editor. So you might say, well, an image editor isn't like a browser. It's like, no, it's not exactly like a browser. But if you ever open a file that came from anywhere that is not on your computer already, in other words, if you don't create everything out of whole cloth on your own computer, actually then the internet is a problem. And so... Every image editor maker actually needs to keep their software patched. Now, even if we ignore the danger of vulnerabilities in JPEG files and PSD files and so on and so forth, there's another problem. Every software app runs on an operating system. And in the olden days, operating systems moved slowly. They didn't change all that much because there wasn't all that much pressure on them to change. But now they're under constant and continuous pressure because your operating system is permanently connected to the internet. Right? See the pattern here. So even if you ignore the fact that that photo editors need security updates just because they open files, they also run on OSs and those OSs are under constant pressure to move on. 
Microsoft cannot keep supporting Windows 3.1 in the modern age. They cannot keep supporting Windows XP forever. They have to move on, which means that software vendors have to move on too. So the world is const- the software world is constantly shifting because of the internet. So it is a reality of the modern world that an app is a living, breathing thing that the maker has to continuously invest in to keep it alive. The moment a software vendor stops putting active resources into a piece of software, it begins to die and it rusts away awfully quickly in the modern world. So the only software you can use is software under active maintenance. Active maintenance involves paying real human beings to do real work. In other words, every living piece of software needs an income stream and that income stream has to be continuous because the moment it ceases to be, the software dies. Now, write once, sell once, move on, that model does not sit well in this modern world. Now, there are different strategies, but ultimately, right, this comes down to an economics problem, and this is the economics of writing software. And you have different ways of trying to square that circle, different ways of trying to deal with the fact that for your app to continue to exist, it must provide a constant stream of input. So, particularly if you're writing a new product, particularly if you're starting from from scratch and building something up, you can rely entirely on growth to give you the constant stream. You can charge every user once because you know that every year you're going to get 10,000 new users. So yes, Bart who bought your Apple last year is not going to give you any more money again for many years to come. But it doesn't matter because there's 10,000 other Barts every year for the foreseeable future. Therefore, we can charge once but still have a constant stream of input, of income. And that model has served companies like the people behind Pixelmator very well. And that's the kind of model that is now working for people like Affinity Photo. The amount of people they have sold their app to is such a tiny percentage of the addressable market that they can rely on growth, not just for months, but probably for a few years. But there will come a point when when that runway ends. And the more established your your product is, the the longer you've been around, the less well you can rely on growth to square the circle. Now, if you're a long-standing product, and maybe you know you came into the, you came into the world a long time ago, and you you carried with you a high price tag because you used to charge people once every three or four years for an upgrade and therefore you had to make it a big build so that it would tide you over until the next big upgrade cycle. So basically you get a massive dump of cash, you then use it for a few years and hope to goodness you can convince people to give you another massive dump of cash. This is the old sell, upgrade, sell, sell, upgrade, upgrade, upgrade sort of cycle, which has its own flaws. If you're that kind of company, you have another option at your disposal. You can try to make it up in volume. So you can basically say, okay, I can't sell 5,000 of these at $5,000 each, but what if I could sell 10,000 of them at $3,000 each? I'm now getting 
selling twice as many products, I'm selling them for more than half the price, therefore I actually make more money even though I've reduced my price. And there are certainly situations where that is a short-term solution to the economics of software. And you can try that, and it may, depending on where your starting point is, it actually may just be a good idea. But that's called a race to the bottom. And in the long term, that means you end up at the bottom. When you arrive at the bottom, you are in a situation where you have used, you, you have reduced your price as far as you can. You have addressed your entire addressable market. So you now have insufficient growth, and every new customer you get does very little for your bottom line because you've driven your price right down. You are now in deep, deep trouble. So the race to the bottom is something companies are very scared of trying because if they do it slowly, it might just serve them well for many years. But if they succeed, they arrive at the bottom and then they're in deep, deep trouble. So this is the position Adobe would have found themselves in, right? So Adobe is the kind of company that's been around for an awfully long time, and I was writing software on the old model. And before the days of the internet, the old model may even have worked quite well for them. But they ended up in a situation where they kind of had to keep charging high prices because otherwise they couldn't afford to keep people working in the years between the upgrade cycles. And so then you say, okay, well, then we should drive more update cycles. Okay. Then you're left trying to invent features that people you hope to goodness you can convince want. This actually isn't in anyone's interest because users don't... What you end up with is not software that meets actual needs. What you end up with is software with sexy features. And sexy features and features you actually need are very often not the same set at all, at all, at all. You also tend to end up with very large, bloated, buggy, confusing... Basically, you end up with really quite unpleasant software. What you end up with, actually, is Photoshop. And Photoshop is amazing and awful, all at the same time, largely because it has been in this upgrade race for too long. And I think it's pretty darn clear Adobe realized their economics was completely not working for them. They they had moved to an annual upgrade cycle. Their prices were as were high and they had to be high because otherwise they couldn't keep the lights on and so adobe went for the obvious change in the internet world software is not like a car it's not like you know adobe are not ford they don't make a car sell it and move on they effectively create a service that needs constant maintenance and then they sell it for once off prices well that doesn't make any sense who who would expect a service to work like that. And software now is a service because it needs this constant maintenance. So you wouldn't go to an ISP, say, here you go, I'm going to give you a one-off payment and now I expect you to provide me with internet service for the next five years. And then maybe we'll talk again. If you if you make your service better, I'll consider giving you some more money. But I do expect to continue to use your software in the meantime and I expect it not to riddle my computer with security holes. So I expect you to constantly put energy into this software that I'm not paying you for. And I may not pay you for if you don't make the upgrade sexy enough. It, it makes no sense. And so if you look at software as a service, well then the obvious model is you rent it. 
you buy access to the service. It's it's actually a very old idea. It's it used to be called SaaS software as a service, uh, and now it's become known as cloud software. But it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. You're renting a service. It's like phone service. It's it's like having an internet service provider. We do this so often. It's like you know, an accountant. You hire their services, and that is why software as a service is coming to being. It's not a money grab. It's a desperate attempt not to go bankrupt because the economics of software, the old model, doesn't work in the internet-connected world. You can get away with it for a while through growth, but it is not a permanent solution. It is not a sustainable model. And every corporation is going to arrive at the point where they need to make the switch from a growth company to something sustainable, which means you're going to expect to see an awful, awful lot more software as a service. Now, from you as an end user, that's actually not a bad thing because you now get software that you know is going to keep being maintained because the company has a steady stream of income. You've also removed the pressure from the company to make these big bang tentpole features no one actually wants to try to trick you into upgrades. Instead, they can focus on making the app crash less, work better, and generally just be a better app. And new features can be driven by actual needs and actual desires and they don't have to be sexy things that demo on stage they can be boring mundane things that make our actual lives a million times better every day so there there are a lot of advantages to software as a service even before you get to the idea of rather than having this really bursty financial outlay you have a budgetable financial outlay and you know, I'll be frank, my income is limited. I know how much I get every month. I don't like big surprises. So actually, subscriptions are great because I can see every month how much I'm spending on software and I can decide which to keep and which to ditch. And I don't get these, oh great, Adobe have just dumped the latest great big project. Now I need to go pay for an upgrade. It, it's... You know, there is a big advantage to it from the economics point of view. But even if you leave the economics aside, if you only look at it from the point of view of, I am investing in this app. I am putting years of effort into becoming an expert at using this app. Well, then I want this app to be financially secure. In the internet-connected world, that means if it's an established company that can't rely on growth as a get-out-of-jail-free card, I've got to have a constant stream of money from me to that company or this project, this product, this software I rely on is doomed. So that is my logical and reasoned defense of the concept of software as a service. I have no idea if that's going to make any dent whatsoever in people's emotional feelings. I know people will continue to feel that they've been a loyal Adobe customer for years and that they therefore are entitled to continue to do things the old way forevermore. And I get that, right? I totally understand the emotion. So I have no idea if I've convinced anyone of anything or changed anyone's mind on anything. But I do hope I've at least caused people to think about the economics of their software. Software is written by human beings like me. I I do software development. I need to be paid. I need to put food on the table. So for software to survive, for software to be a success, it needs to work for both parties. The people writing it and the people using it. There has to be a harmony. So when I choose a piece of software, what I think about is, does this meet my needs? 
Does it do what I need it to do? Is it sustainable? Is there a business model I have faith in? And then there's a third point that I consider very strongly. Does the company's vision for the future align with my vision for the future? If you know where a company's headed and you don't like the destination, it's time to switch. All you will be doing is being angry and trying to hold back the sea. Right? That corporation is going where that corporation is going. Right? They have set their vision. They have set their goals. They have probably researched the absolute bejesus out of it and made that decision after great thought. You can write as many angry tweets as you like. You're not changing that company. All you're doing is driving your blood pressure up and making your life miserable. You need to find a company whose vision aligns with yours and put your money into making them sustainable. So features, a sustainable business model, and a compatible vision. Software needs all three of those things if it's the right software for you. If one of those three is missing, it cannot be the right software for you because it's fundamentally flawed. Anyway, I think I've had enough on my little soapbox. I'll get off now. Uh, I would very much appreciate anyone's feedback on this episode. I have a feeling I've probably made some people cranky. Um, but if you have a reasonable argument to make, hey, I'd love to hear it. Yes, it's kind of the whole point here, right? Let's have some logic to go with the emotion. Anyway, um, if you enjoyed the show, you can uh, find show notes. There actually, I actually did up some detailed bullet points before I recorded this. So I'm going to pop those in as show notes over at letstashtalk.ie. So you'll find them over there on the website. While you're over there, you can also obviously subscribe to the podcast. Although if you're hearing my voice, you probably have already. And you can listen to episodes on the website if you want. And you can send the link to your friends. So letstashtalk.ie. But there's also large blue buttons under the heading support the show so the show too needs to be sustainable i also have bills to pay uh so some of you know the, the four buttons are ways of supporting the show in a very practical fiscal sort of way so there is a patreon button patreon is a service that allows listeners to pledge their support to a podcast by basically becoming a patron of that podcast in the old renaissance sense of the word patron of the arts not not that i think this is art by the way uh, so the way it works is you pledge a small dollar amount for every episode I put out. There will be exactly two a month, one on this show, one on Let's Talk Apple. So if you'd like to give me a dollar a month, pledge 50 cent per show. If you'd like to give me two dollars a month, pledge a dollar a show, you get the idea. All of those small dollar donations get pooled together and they come to me in one big payment at the end of the month, which means that it's very efficient in terms of fees. If you try to donate one dollar to me directly, PayPal will take... 53 cents of that in fees and i will get 47 cents very good for paypal not very good for me and a complete waste of your money so that's why patreon is so great because it pools these transactions together so you might support 10 podcasts so you make one payment to patreon a patreon then bulk together the contributions for every podcaster and they then send single payments out that way basically the donors win the podcasters win it's just a really good system it's it's a fantastic way of doing micropayments so patreon really helps and of course the great thing with patreon is i know the money is coming in therefore i can create bills up to the amount that i know is coming in from patreon it just allows planning and stuff now at the moment i need to invest in some new equipment so actually i'm hoping for the next while to have more money coming in via the patreon each month than i need to spend on bills and that's almost that's it's we're getting there we are actually getting there um 
taken a long time, but at this stage, the show is pretty much breaking even, which is an amazing feeling. So thank you very much, everyone who supports the show. But I could do with an extra little push for the next while because I could do with a new mic. I could do with a new mic boom. And realistically speaking, within a year from now, I'm going to need to buy a new computer and I can't afford it. So I need some help is just the simple blunt uh, fact of the matter. Um, So that's the Patreon button. There's also PayPal button. Fantastic for one-off donations. But as I say, unless the donation is at least $5, what's going to happen is PayPal are going to get up the vast majority of the money well not the vast majority but the people are going to get most of the money so rather than sending me a dollar a month you know sit on it for six months and send me six dollars it's is if you're going to do it the paypal way and then that way it actually is an effective donation then there's three other buttons uh one of them is to a zazzle store where you can buy merchandise i'm probably going to close that down because it seems that the only person who wants a coffee cup with my logo on it is me so i, I own it it's a really nice coffee cup uh, but if you do buy something there, I get a percentage of what you buy and you wander around being an advertisement for the show, which obviously aids the show in two ways. And then there are two buttons to affiliate links to a fantastic domain registrar called Hover. If you need a domain name and you use that affiliate link, then you're going to have a small contribution come back to me, but only if you actually buy a domain after clicking on the link. So don't bother clicking those links unless you actually need a domain name. And in a very similar vein, there's a link to DigitalOcean, who are a hosting provider. They do fantastic uh, virtual machine hosting. So if you need a virtual private server, by all means, go through my affiliate link, because that way you get the server you need, and I get some assistance, some money, basically, from DigitalOcean. Um, in fact, you do too with DigitalOcean, which is great. So you get $10, I get $25 um, after you spend your first $50. That's how that works. But again, if you don't actually need a virtual private server, it doesn't achieve anything to click on those buttons. There are also, equally as importantly, ways of helping the show that don't involve any sort of financial outlay whatsoever. Because the reality is, podcasts, you know, supporting your favorite podcaster is a hell of a lot further down the list of important things in life than putting food on the table. So, you know, I by no means expect that everyone who listens to the show and enjoys the show somehow has enough spare income to throw it at a random podcaster on the internet. That's just not reality. So if you want to help the show, just tell your friends. Review the show on iTunes. Tweet about the show. That That's all it takes. And that is immensely, immensely helpful when people do that. So everyone can support the show in some way. And everyone who has supported the show in any way whatsoever, I am eternally grateful. It is amazing how, how good you people have been to me over the years. So thank you all. Okay, with that, I'm going to call it a day. Uh, my name has been Bart Bouchot. So you can find me at bartb.org. I.E. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hey Siri, could you read the Three Geeky Ladies promo script? Sure. Elisa says, Welcome to the Three Geeky Ladies podcast and introduces Susay and Vicky. Susay says, Hello everyone. Vicky says, Hi. Elisa, want to know how we feel about the new Apple product? 
to say, what about the iOS camera, Vicky, or the MacBook Pro update, Elisa, to say, and Vicky in unison, then, listen to the 3 Geeky Ladies podcast, Siri, the 3 Geeky Ladies podcast on the My Mac Podcasting Network.